Okay. Um, why do we exist? Most of you, I suspect, don't wake up in the morning going, what's the point of me being here? Okay. Sometimes you should. For any of you who are students, you may wonder, why am I here? I don't know if you've ever had that expression where you just you wake up and you think, what's the point of all this? And uh, it's kind of deep existential thought and so on, and the angst that goes with that. Now, you don't normally think that, okay? But that's what we want to think about just now, because everything else fits within that. You've got to know who you are. You've got to know why you are here. And what we're going to say this evening applies to people of absolutely every single culture, okay? So... Uh, I want, first of all, to, if we go on to the next slide, as they say, what's the chief purpose for which man is made? Now, boys and girls, by the way, uh, we're going to look, be looking at different questions. This is called a catechism that we take this from. And uh, if you can learn this, and I'll actually say this to the adults as well, uh, the, the grown-ups, the students, semi-grown-ups, um, if... You can answer this question, plus, let's say, I'm going to do another 10, but let's say you can do 10 out of these questions, and you memorize them. I think this, I'll give you a reward. I'm not quite sure what reward it will be, because it depends how you do it, but looking at you, I don't feel at too great a risk. So, I know these guys will remember. Um, Did you know, by the way, that by the time you reach eight years old, your brain starts dying? So, time to learn is up till about seven The chief purpose for which man is made is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man, by the way, is, of course, a generic term, man and uh, woman. The chief purpose for which man is made is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, glory is one of those words that is kind of like a religious word we don't really use very much in normal conversation. You do not walk up to your girlfriend and say, my, you look glorious today. Uh, Well, you might. But most people don't. Let's go to the next slide. Let me give you a dictionary definition of glory. Great fame or honor won by notable achievements. So you know that. So um, Andy Murray wins Wimbledon next year. Glory and so on. Dundee win the European Championship in two years' time. Glory. Um, We sing. I've actually been at a football uh, match where I've heard people singing glory, 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 Man United. Um, and we, we recognize that. Great fame won by notable achievements. Magnificence, great beauty. You might say the sunset is, is glorious. If you're an incredibly arrogant person, you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, you go, magnificent, glorious. There's not many of you like that, but some of you may uh, be that vain. In the same light, a very beautiful or impressive thing. It's glorious, it's beautiful, it's stunning. And then worship and thanksgiving offered to God. Now, we'll bear those things in mind. We'll leave them up there as we look at John chapter 17 and ask, what is the glory of God? And while we look for John 17, uh, can I pick on Sarah? Could you get me a glass of water? Otherwise, I'll dry up completely. The other thing is, I hope you're all warm enough. It was freezing when you came in here. You'll probably get really roasting in a while. If you get too roasting, then feel free to turn down one of the radiators. Uh, let's not have the competition where some people's cold and someone's hot, so they, you know, each gets up and turns it off and on. But uh, 
Let's look at this idea of glory that Jesus speaks about in John chapter 17. Look at verse 5. Now, Father, says Jesus, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Some of, some of this is really hard to get our heads around. In a few weeks' time, at Christmas, what will we be celebrating, guys? At Christmas, whose birth do we celebrate? <laughs> Fraser, do you know? <laughs> whose birthday is it at Christmas? <laughs> Think about it. The answer that's 50% right all the time in Sunday school. Mm, he's too shy. Whose birthday, Emma Jane, then? Jesus' birthday. Okay. But here's the thing. Jesus' birthday is not the beginning of Jesus' life. Because Jesus existed before he was born. He was the son of God in all eternity. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And it talks about that word being Jesus, and it talks about that word coming down to us. Now, we don't know what this means. I knew I would get her up to the front. She's really shy about coming up to the front. She wasn't going to come and make the announcement at the front. But We don't, we don't know what this is like. But there is a, a, a spiritual song, a Negro spiritual song. He came from the glory. He came from the glorious kingdom. Jesus came from the glory of heaven. We find that very difficult because we are so earth-centered and we're so me-centered and we find it very difficult to conceive of a world outside of ourselves. But before the world ever existed, before we ever existed, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit lived in perfect unity with the angels in the glory of heaven. Glorify me, he says, in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now just picture, try and understand to some degree what's going on in Jesus' mind. He's here, he's going to the cross. He's not exactly lived in a palace on earth. And what he's done is, he's lived in poverty, he's been betrayed, he's seen his... Uh, religion, if you like, the religion that God the Father gave to the Jewish people being distorted and perverted. He's seen all the ugliness in humanity. And he really, there's almost a sense in which he's saying, let me go home. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I want to go home. It's like if you've ever gone, you know, really roughing it when you're camping. It might sort of be cool for the first day and then the second day. But after you've been there a few days and you're cold and you're wet and you're hungry and you're thinking about your wonderful bed back home and all the things that you never really appreciated, things like hot chocolate and television and all that kind of stuff, and you're thinking, oh, if only I could go home. Well, not, not to trivialize it, but just to make it extend that a billion times and you see what Jesus is asking. The glory of God, the magnificence of God, the beauty of God, the honor of God, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit share. How, okay, it's, it's okay to say that God is glorious. How do you see that? For example, 
If you were, in the Old Testament, they had what's called a theophany, an appearance of God. If you were to have that right now, you know, people say, oh, Lord, be among us. Oh, God, come amongst us. If God was to come amongst us, there isn't a single person here who'd be standing on their feet. You would not. You would be so stunned by the glory of God. To ask to see that. No one sees God and lives. So how, how do we know that? How do we know about the glory of God? How do we experience the glory of God? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. If you've got your, we've all got the, the same page in the Bible, so I'll say them as well if you're using these one. Hebrews chapter 1, which is on page 1,200. 1,201. In the past, Hebrews 1 verse 1, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The son is the radiance of God's glory. In other words... It's as though you look in a mirror and you see reflected the glory of God. So if you want to see the glory of God, you need to see Jesus. That's the first thing. Go back into John's gospel and go back right to the beginning. John chapter 1 and verse 14. John chapter 1 verse 14 where it says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says we have seen his glory. Now, again, just think about this, how practical, how practically this worked out. When John first met Jesus, he did not see, I, I don't know mm-hmm. what your image of Jesus is, but if your image of Jesus is a tall guy, a tall white guy in a flowing robe with long hair, like a 1960s hippie and a shining face, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. If Jesus was to be present amongst us right now, you wouldn't know us. There wouldn't be anything about his appearance that would be any different from, from normally. If we were, I mean, if you were to go back into uh, Palestine, if you go back into Israel at the time of Jesus, you wouldn't know. That's why there's no description of Jesus in the Bible. That's why John, when he speaks of the glory of Jesus, he doesn't say he was six foot tall. He doesn't say he was really handsome. He doesn't say he had blue sparkling eyes. He doesn't say any of that. If you think about it, for those of you who have been brought up in a religious background and you were given Sunday school books when you were a kid, what do these Sunday school books, what do these pictures have of Jesus? They do have him as a white guy. Well, he wasn't. He's a Palestinian. He's an Arab. He wouldn't have been white. We know that. He almost certainly would have had a beard. He didn't go around shaving. And he probably would have had long hair. But we don't know anything. We don't know whether he was four foot five, whether he was six foot five. We don't know what he weighed. We have no idea what he looked like. And that's why it's impossible for us to conjure in our mind. But and when John saw Jesus, he didn't initially think of him as glorious. But as he lived with Jesus, as Jesus taught him, and as he witnessed what happened to Jesus, he is then able to speak of the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's something that we can experience as well. Go back to John 17, and where Jesus is praying Right at the beginning, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. What is that speaking about? It's speaking about what is just about to happen, where Jesus goes to the cross. 
How is the glory of Jesus, how is the glory of God shown on the cross? The cross is horrendously ugly. The cross you cannot show. The cross you cannot portray. Again, forget all the religious imagery of the cross. The golden crucifixes with the nice saintly Jesus smiling down and being really peaceful about it. These nails don't hurt me. You know that. I mean, the cross, if you looked at the cross... In fact, let me tie this in with what I said earlier. The only physical description we have of Jesus is not in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, right at the end of chapter 52 and at the beginning of chapter 53. And it says he was so marred that we turned our faces away from him. He was so ugly that we turned our faces away from him. It was so horrendous. I, I'm, uh, I don't like blood human blood. I could never be a medic. Apologies to all the medics and so on. But anytime one of these medical shows comes on and someone's busy ripping open guts and stuff, I'm just going, oh no, I'm sick. That's just horrendous. I've never really been into horror movies for the same reason. It's just, ugh. You know, and it's, you know that kind of reaction that you get when you see uh, something I was watching, what was it, Midsummer Murders yesterday, a guy falls on a plow, you know, and I'm just, I'm wincing even at the thought of him being pierced by this plow, of course. Why he didn't move out the way when he fell, I don't know, but he just bleh, flat and you just go, you just, you just cringe and you go, oh, that's absolutely horrendous. Well, again, this would be many, many times over. You, you cannot envisage Jesus on a cross and say, oh, isn't that lovely? How wonderful. What a beautiful religious symbol. What a, what a wonderful testimony. It's ugly. It's horrible. The, clo- the cross is, is Belson and Auschwitz. I heard one, someone explain it this way once. Would you wear a picture of the dead bodies at Auschwitz around your neck? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't do that at all. Because the cross is really, really ugly. So how can it be the glory of God? Because it's what God did on the cross. It's what Jesus did on the cross that makes it absolutely glorious. And as we go through this series, we'll see more and more of that. But I make no apology whatsoever that Christianity is a religion of the cross. It is the Son of God coming down and dying on the cross. Why he died and what all that means and so on, we'll see more and more. But basically, a Christian is someone who can say with the Apostle Paul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Now, that's how we glorify God, by the way. Great fame or honor won by notable achievements. Read through the book of Revelation. What do you find? You find thousands upon thousands of angels worshiping Jesus, the lamb who was slain. The lamb looking as if it had been slain. The lamb on the throne. The lion on the throne. The, the, the crucified savior in heaven. An old Scottish theologian called Rabbi Duncan once spoke of being in heaven and saying, We will gaze in wonder. At the holes in his hand and at the crucified lamb on the cross. So the glory of Jesus is shown in the cross. We know God through Jesus. We know Jesus through the scriptures. And we know the glory of Jesus through what he did on the cross. Let me then ask just how can we, how can we glorify God? Verse 10. Because that does seem a bit strange. Let's go back to John 17. Verse 10. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. How can a a sinful human being glorify God? How can I glorify God? Is it by jumping up and down and shouting hallelujah? Is it by singing glorify your name? No. The way that we glorify God 
Glory has come to me through them. Who's he speaking about? He's speaking about the disciples. What did the disciples do? They followed Jesus. And Jesus said, this bunch of men who are going to betray me, these people who don't understand really who I am, yet they have brought me glory. They have brought me glory. And I would suggest to you that the way that we glorify God is by showing people the love of Jesus Christ, by showing people Jesus Christ. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount talks about people seeing your good deeds and glorifying your Father in heaven. So we glorify God when we praise him, yes. We glorify God, most of all, when we live for him and when we live for Jesus. And you think about it this way. It's a bit like um, adverts, in a sense. If you are a Christian, you are a walking advert for Jesus Christ. And here's the most amazing thing. As you read through John 17, go back into John 16 and John 15, you will find that Jesus gives people in the world the right to do something. And it seems a very strange right. He says, they will know that you sent me. They will know that you sent me by the love they have for one another. But he goes on. To explicitly state, they won't know, they won't know, if we don't live for Jesus Christ. See, in the world that we live in, the vast vast majority of people in this city, the vast majority of people in the university and in the shops and in, in workplaces and in homes and in the pubs right now, the vast majority have no concept of Jesus Christ. And what will make them seek Christ is when they see Christ in his people. And that's how we glorify God. Let me also say this. We glorify God by enjoying him. Let's go on to, on to that one. What is the enjoyment of God? Well, this is enjoyment. The state or process of taking pleasure in something. A thing that gives pleasure. The fact of having and benefiting from something. Now, Jesus speaks about his own joy. Look at, in chapter 17, look at verse 13. Where he says this, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus has joy. The Father has joy. In Zechariah, it talks about God the Father singing over his people with joy. See, maybe it's the way I was brought up, but I had this image of God as someone who was always quite austere. You know, you never, never, never make people smile in church. Smiling in church is kind of, it's just a, you know, not just quite right. You know, and the idea was, I, I kind of grew up, and it wasn't explicitly taught, but it was implied, I think, anyway. In my psyche, I had this idea that I could enjoy life on earth, and then I was going to get to heaven. And, well, heaven's a whole lot better than the other place. But it didn't sound, uh, forgive me saying, it didn't sound all that enjoyable. Um, I was told once, you know, heaven will be wonderful. It's one eternal church service. Now, that's about as close to hell as I could have thought of anything at that per- particular point in my life. It was just awful, just an awful idea. And the idea of actually enjoying God, I mean, I'm a good Scots Calvinist. So I think if I'm enjoying something, there must be something wrong. You know, I will pay for it. You know, you can't, can you enjoy being in church? Can you enjoy? Well, it, it, it just doesn't seem to fit, to take pleasure. And yet here is God, here is Jesus, and they joy. Now, what is that? It's the delight that Jesus has in his Father. It's the delight that he has with the Spirit. 
It's the joy of relationship. It's the joy of being. Now, that's the great thing about the Trinity, by the way. And again, we're going to look at the Trinity uh, later on. But that's the fantastic thing about believing in one God who's a Trinity. Because there's a relationship involved in that. Now, forgive me expressing it. Let, Let me express it in terms of human relationships. Would you completely misunderstand if I said, uh, and I hope she won't be embarrassed, but if I said if I, I enjoy my wife, would you, would you have any idea what that means? I mean, I hope she enjoys me as well. Um, all right, let's forget about us. Let's go on to the newly married couples in the congregation. How are you enjoying marriage? I'm not going to pick on anyone. Izzy and Dave, no, I'm not going to pick on you or, or anyone like that. You say, I mean, would you ever say, I am really enjoying so-and-so. I'm really enjoying so-and-so. What does that mean? It's speaking about intimacy of relationship. And yes, of course, it's speaking physically. It's speaking emotionally. It's speaking about a connectedness. You just enjoy. You enjoy being with them. You just enjoy having them. You enjoy sharing together. Well, again, in human love and in human relationships, there's always imperfections. But in the absolute relationship of God, there is nothing like that at all. It's just the joy of being. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and you'll see a kind of another sort of joy. Uh, Hebrews 12 and verse 2. That's on page 1,210. Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why did Jesus go to the cross? He went to the cross because there was going to be a great joy given to him. In one sense, it wasn't all sacrifice on his part. It was sacrifice. It was the absolute sacrifice. But he was looking forward to what? The great joy that was set before him. And that joy was to save a multitude that no one could count. It's to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God as the Savior. And again, it comes back to the cross. So... We've got enjoyment. We've got enjoyment in the sense of God living in a joyous relationship. Jesus, the joy of of the work that he has done. But that still doesn't deal with how can we enjoy God. Now the first question to ask is just simply this. Should we be seeking enjoyment at all? And any of you who've read anything of John Piper, Desiring God or... um, any of his sermons along this line, I think that you will recognize a great deal of this. Isn't Christianity, though, supposed to be about self-denial? Isn't seeking your own enjoyment something selfish? You know, I want to enjoy God. Now, isn't that, I suppose, am I not supposed to be helping and saving the world and so on? Let's go on to the next slide and you'll see. This is what Piper says. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, God is glorified not when we're miserable, not when we're complaining, not when we're going, oh, Lord, this is not enough. Oh, Lord, this is not good. But when we are most satisfied in God, when we enjoy God. And it's not selfish. Go on to the next slide, please. Two quotes. C.S. Lewis. It's a Christian duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. Okay? For all of you who were brought up in my kind of background... Just burn that into your memory. It is your duty to be as happy as you can. Pascal, all men, the French uh, philosopher, and if you ever get a chance, read his pensées, they're brilliant. 
All men seek happiness without exception. They all aim at this goal, however different the means they use to attain it. They will never make the smallest move, but with this as its goal. This is the motive of all the actions of all men, even those who contemplate suicide. Why? Why do they commit suicide? Because they think they'll be happier if they're dead. It's our personal happiness which drives us and motivates us in almost everything. And as Christians, we don't turn around and say, oh, that's all wrong. It's all completely selfish. In fact, as Christians, what we would say is, I believe what the Bible says, is that in fact, we believe that people are too easily satisfied. You're too easily satisfied. C.S. Lewis again describes it this way. You are satisfied with playing in a mud hole in your garden when you could be going and relaxing on a tropical beach. You're satisfied with the pleasures that this world gives without God. And it's just not enough. We need the joy of the Lord to be our strength. Not the joy of sex or the joy of alcohol or the joy of anything else. Any of the gifts which God gives, but without him, are like salt water. They never, ever satisfy us. They are fading pleasures and without God are absolutely meaningless. Psalm 16 tells us of how it's at God's right hand are pleasures evermore. By the way, that's one of the great lies that, that people believe. On the one hand, there are Christians who are holy and good and serve people and are miserable. And on the other hand, there are people who are not yet Christians or not Christians and they have a whale of a time. Whereas in reality, what this is being said is if you really want to be satisfied, if you really want joy, if you really want to enjoy your life to the full, what's the, the Pepsi ads? You know, Pepsi, live life to the max. Are any of you stupid enough? To believe that drinking a can of Pepsi is going to be the equivalent of flying off a mountain or, or, or living life to the max, you know. I mean, the ads are brilliant. How many people really buy into that? Do you seriously open a can of Pepsi and go, whoa, this is life to the max? Well, that compared with knowing Jesus Christ or compared with knowing God, that's pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic. But that's what people do. I meet so many people and they say, oh, Dave... You're a nice guy, but I feel really sorry for you. You must have such a miserable life, you know. You're in that church all the time. You're a minister. You're just, oh, man. You know, I'm just going to wait until I get loads and loads older, until I've really enjoyed myself first, and then I'll, I'll, I'll turn all religious just, you know, as a double insurance policy in case it turns out to be true just before I die. Well, apart from the stupidity of not knowing when you're going to die, it's also stupid because you will not enjoy life to the max without God. See, that's the point. And that makes a huge, huge difference in our lives. I want to say this to you, not as a, a, a something for entirely selfish reason, but to say this, why do we exist? You are a human being and you exist to glorify God and to enjoy him. And until you do that, you won't be satisfied. Becoming a Christian is not about be, being dehumanized. It's not about being turned into some kind of religious robot. It's about really coming to know who you are and really coming to know who God is and coming to know where you are. Now, what I want to do just now, we're going to take, let's see how this works. I want you, I'm going to get you to split into about six. So if you like do three and three, turn around your chairs and all that kind of stuff. It'll be a bit noisy, but don't worry. Can we put it in the next slide? I want you to look at these verses in the Bible 
First of all, what I want you to do is introduce you to the people around you. Try not to sit with just people you know all the time, okay? I mean, if you're a heathen and you've come with a bunch of heathens, try and find a few Christians. Uh, if you're a Pentecostal and you've come with some Pentecostals, try and find a few free church people. You know, if, if you're male, try and find a female. You know what I mean. Just mix it around a wee bit. And, and look at these verses and answer the question, what do these verses teach us about joy in Christ? Now, all the children, I want you to come and sit down in the front with me because... We've got our own way of uh, doing In fact, I'll tell you what we'll do, guys. We're going to go through there, through in, in that wee room in there. But the rest of you, I want you to turn in here to look at these verses. You probably won't. I'm going to give you 15 minutes. That's the maximum you'll get. You probably won't be able to go through them all. If you are, or if you say, I don't want to talk, I don't want to say anything, then pray together. Introduce yourself to each other and just pray together. And what I want you to ask is, how, does, how do these verses apply in terms of our joy in Christ. Um, you'll, you'll see yourselves when you look at them. The other thing that you can do is, if you want, um, if you want to think of a question that you might like to ask, I'll open myself to that. When we come back together, we'll maybe take two or three questions as well, just in case you're looking at this and you're saying, I don't get that. That doesn't make sense. Or you might be looking at it and saying, I don't agree with that. I think that's wrong. I, I, can't, I can't accept that at all. Well, now's your opportunity to, to think about this. And then we're going to come back and sum it all up and uh, finish with a song. So just split yourself into small groups, introduce each other, have a look at these verses, think of any questions, pray if you want. You've got 15 minutes, and if the children could come with me. I'll see if that remains in your brains next week, okay? <laughs> Let's know. All right, Let's, let me just briefly go through these verses. John 15:11. We look there and it says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The, what Jesus has said, that's the teaching of Jesus. Let's just take that in general. The teaching of Jesus, if you want to know real joy and you want to know the joy of Jesus, you take his teaching, even when it's really difficult. Because the teaching he had before, he was really difficult. You see, there's lots of people like the idea of Jesus. You know, Jesus is cool. Jesus, everyone likes the idea of Jesus. But when you start getting the teaching of Jesus, sometimes it's really difficult. So when he's talked about his, his body, for example, and people eating the bread and so on, thousands of people left him. Jesus was actually a pretty unsuccessful preacher. Because every time he preached, it's as though people said, I, I can't stand this, I'm out of here. And the teaching of Jesus is quite difficult. In many ways. But if you really want real joy, you need to have the teaching of Jesus. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. That's a, a fairly straightforward one. Um, that's all to do with godliness with contentment is great gain. We look for joy in terms of money. And most of us, we'd be lying if that wasn't the case. The test I'd give you that is just very simply. You go home tonight and you look through your door. There's an envelope and there's £10,000 in there. You're going to smile. Okay, you're going to be very, very, very happy. Uh, it's not going to happen, but let's just, you know, it, it, you're going to... I would be extremely happy. If I clicked on my internet bank tomorrow and saw that I was not in overdraft, I, I'm going to be smiling. Okay, that's just the way that it is. Um, if you can tell the student loan company to take a hike because you've got plenty of money, you don't need their money, then you're going to be extremely happy. But... That's, a, that's the kind of shallow happiness. It doesn't go really deep-rooted. And godliness with contentment is great gain. Money, again, just doesn't satisfy you. Psalm 37, verse 4. That's, a, again, just a wonderful, wonderful verse that illustrates what we're saying, what we're 
trying to say is that you delight yourself in God and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, what that's not saying is, Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes Benz? So I'm going to do what you say and you'll give me a Mercedes Benz because you're not delighting yourself in God. What you want is the Mercedes Benz. You don't want God. But if you want God, then everything else follows from that. So Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. See, I'll I'll make a small confession. I started going to church when I started going because there were some actually some very attractive young ladies uh, in the particular church I went to. That wasn't really seeking God. Now, God overruled and used that. Um, But there are many, many different reasons that people come. There are people who go to the CU or the people who come to church, and they come for lots of different reasons. Older people might come for companionship. Other people might come out of habit. Some people might come because they're looking to get something. Unless you're looking to get God, it's not going to work. And then Philippians 3 and verse 8, if any of you manage to make it through that far Philippians 3 and verse 8 again that's just fairly straightforward he says this what is more I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I've lost all things I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ you know if you are deeply 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 in love with somebody and you marry them and you lose your job you lose your house you're in just so much trouble, but if, you, if the two of you are in just, you just say, look, I don't care. I've got you. And what was it? And there's a YouTube song, All I Want Is You. Well, that is ultimately what the Christian is saying. Lord, who have I got in heaven except you? Who have I, and on the earth, there's nobody I desire except you. And it's just a wonderful thing to have, to, to know and to have God in that way. All right, before we, before we wrap up, did, did anyone have a, a question or a comment that they wanted to make? I'm not going to sit in silence for 10 minutes, so if you've got one, Hugh. In Psalm 37, it says that God will give us the desires of our heart. Yeah. Does that mean that every desire that we've got is going to be fulfilled? Yeah. Because it's the desire that we've got, God wants to fulfill, obviously, somehow he's programmed us to have any desires, so we should have an order that we can get. Yeah, so what do you want, Hugh? <laughs> Maybe Maddie's going to give it to you. No. <laughs> No, what it means is, I mean, you've got to take the first bit. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. In other words, if your heart is focused on the Lord, then everything else follows from that. And and that does include material things. It includes other things as well. God, Paul and Timothy talks about how God richly gives us all things to enjoy. You know, and sometimes, is is it wrong for me to say, Lord, you know, I would love to go and... and, um, hear that piece of music or do something. I, I've always wanted, for example, this is a small thing, I've always wanted to go and hear Leonard Cohen. And when he came to Scotland, I thought, oh, I'd love to go and hear him, but I couldn't afford the ticket or whatever. I have this wonderful sister who phoned me up and said, hey, I'll take you to hear Leonard Cohen. And you, absolutely, I'm going. Now, do I put Leonard Cohen before God? No, not at all. If I hadn't got to see him, would it be a complete disaster? No, it wasn't. But it was just an extra little bonus. And, you, you know, you delight yourself in God... And it's amazing what God gives. Now, the trouble is, if you seek God in order to get things, you're not delighting yourself in God. But if you delight yourself in God, then eye has not seen nor ear has heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And that's not just in, in heaven. Jesus said, if you are prepared to give up everything for me, you will receive a hundred times more in this life. And it's not a simple thing of saying, right, we're going to do a collection, folks. Here's 10 quid. You'll get a hundred quid back. It's not like that. But it's just saying, 
the more you release yourself to God, the more wonderful you will experience his benefit. So you've got to take the first part of the verse. Okay, good, good, good question though. Anyone else got anything else they want to ask or make a comment about? Okay, let's finish. Um, yeah, sure. What's the difference between happiness and joy? Anna, go away. <laughs> All right, what, what do you think is the difference? I mean, I think you're right, because I think what we've made, we've made happiness and joy two separate words. I actually think in the Bible, the Bible talks about blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and so on. And blessed and happiness are quite synonymous. I would put happiness and joy together, actually. But I I know I would put them together. I would say there's really no difference. But what I would say is this. There's a kind of of happiness stroke joy, which is entirely me-centered. You know, and you can understand that. I mean, if I go home tonight and there's scallops waiting for me and, you know, <laughs> a wee glass of wine or something, you know, you just, yeah, I'm going to feel happy. If I get up in the morning, it's a beautiful sunny day, you know, I'm going to feel happy. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm suggesting is that there's a shallow happiness that doesn't really last or satisfy. And there's a deeper happiness. I wouldn't put happiness and joy as, as being two different things. What I would say is, there's a shallow happiness that we, we, we're desperate for a satisfaction. Yeah, and, and fulfilling that. And, and it, look, when someone shoots up with heroin or cocaine or something, they feel happy at the time. But it's, it's not, that's not real. In fact, it's probably because they're desperately unhappy that they're doing that. Um, it's possible to know joy in the deepest pain in the world. You know, that's quite extraordinary, but it's possible to do that if your joy is in Christ. Now, no Christian, nobody wants to experience pain. Nobody wants to go through sorrow. But you can be joyful. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You can be joyful in the most difficult of circumstances. These are relatively superficial things. What you really got to get down to is what's deep, deep, deep inside you. That's back to this question. And I'm going to finish with yours, Anna, because I think this is right. Back to this question of why do we exist? To really answer that question, you have to be prepared to go deep, deep, deep into yourself. And you probably don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. When I look at myself, I don't like what I see. And to go deep is really, really uncomfortable. You've ever had that experience when someone asks you questions and you're thinking, they can see, they can know. You don't want to know. Let me tell you this. When you come to God, the Holy Spirit reveals things in you and about you that are just so distorting and so uncomfortable. But it's worth it. Because it's as though God is like the ultimate surgeon. He cuts deep, but not to wound and destroy, only to bind up and to heal. And I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this to finish, that, that to glorify God and to enjoy him, I'm, I'm going to plead with every single one of you, and I'm including across the board people who say that they're Christians and people who say they're not. When someone says they're a Christian, I don't even know what that means sometimes. I don't know sometimes what you're saying. 
Because it's, the language is used in so many different ways. But I'm saying this. You really are a Christian if Jesus is everything for you. Not just, I'll take Jesus as long as he gives me that girl. I'll take Jesus as long as he gives me that job. I'll take Jesus as long as he makes me feel all gooey inside. I'll take Jesus as long as it suits my need at that time. You're only a Christian when you say Jesus is Lord. When everything is geared towards it. Now that, to some people, sounds like complete religious fanaticism. And it would be if it were false. But if the rock is there, then you stand solidly on the rock. You put your whole weight on the rock. And I'm saying, if, and not, forget what I'm saying. The Bible is saying, if you want to know real joy, if you want to know real happiness, then you need to know Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you need to get to know him better. And that's the purpose of what we're doing.